0: grateful that you've chosen to study with us tonight, whether you're doing that in person or online. Uh, It is our continuation of what we call Ministers of the Roundtable. It is our Sunday evening Bible study with all four ministers here of the Buford Church of Christ. Currently, we have been engaged in a series that we call Got Questions. It's been a series in which we are uh, studying the questions that are most frequently asked of us that relate to some biblical or theological topic. Uh, so th- thus far in this series of studies, we've, we've talked about doubts and we've talked about suffering. Tonight we are going to turn our attention to uh, the question of why are there so many denominations in the world. Now, we originally were going to address uh, the subject, uh, a more sensitive subject, the subject of homosexuality, but we'll be addressing that next week. We encourage you to join us for that study as well. But tonight we're going to focus on this question, why are there so many denominations? Uh, We'll be diving into that subject here in just a moment, but before we do, we would like to go to God in prayer, so we ask that you join us in a word of prayer at this time. Heavenly Father, we are honored We are honored to have this time and this opportunity to study your word. And Lord, I'm grateful for the the men I get to sit up here with, the ministers that I get to work with, and for the knowledge that they bring to uh, the study of your word and the ability that we collectively have to examine it as a a group. We're thankful for all those who are present, whether that is in person or online, and for their desire to study your word with us. And it is our, our sincere request that you bless this time of study so that it is beneficial, so that it is uplifting, and so that it is uh, in keeping with your will and your word. And Lord, may we all seek to know your will. May we all seek to grow in uh, the knowledge of it, and may we all seek to apply it and obey it in our lives. Lord, we um, thank you for allowing us to be assembled tonight, allowing us to have this time. And may we utilize it to the best of our ability. We love you, Lord, and it's through your son's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So as I've said, our question for the evening is why are there so many denominations? And the way we're going to go about this is examining it in some different parts. And we're going to start by breaking this down with one question initially. And that was, or that is, what was Christ's intent for the church? What was Christ's intent for the church, original intent for the church? To get us started with this point, we're going to turn it over to Jay and let him lead us off.
1: Okay, if you've got your Bibles, I don't know if that was loud for you, it was loud for me. If you've got got your Bibles, John chapter 17, I'm just going to hold that, John chapter 17 is where we're going to start at tonight. So the question is, what was Christ's original intent for his church, for his body, for his... uh, Group of believers that we're going to be that he's not ashamed to call brothers, you know, Hebrews chapter four. So what was his original intent for that? We're merely going to start in John chapter seventeen because it gives a great summation verse. We're going to jump around to, for, to a, a few different verses tonight, and, I, and my goal is really just to get the ball rolling because I think we all have different passages and points that could add into this. And before we get into them, I wanted to talk about how beautiful that is. You know, one of the best things about God's word is His will is is not hidden in one verse behind this chapter. God's will or His Son's original intent is not some obscure thought that we have to dive in deep. It's all throughout Scripture. We can see in almost every New Testament the book Christ's original intent and what His goal was, uniting His believers. So we're going to look at a, the tip of the iceberg when it comes to isolating what Christ's original intent for the church was. So let's start in John chapter 17. This is a, a moment of prayer for Christ, talking to His Father. Let's start in verse... Uh, Let's start in verse 18 and read through 21. As you you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. This is a verse we're really going to hone in here before we move on. That they may all be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. When it comes down to the the very original intent that Christ had, and even coming down to the earth in the first place was, he wanted to give to man what he shared with God. This whole idea that as you are in me and and I am in you, that connection with God, he said, I want that for them. And not only for these apostles, but to those who they speak the truth to. And so his original intent is to unify his group of believers. He wanted to bring together those that believed in God through through him. And so with that in mind, now let's flip over to Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to look at a few different passages in Ephesians 4 tonight before I, I hand it over back to these guys. So his goal is to simply come together and unite all his believers in one with one faith, and in one truth. Ephesians chapter 4. Let's start in verse 4. There is one body, one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we see the answer to Christ's original intent was not only unity, the same unity that he got to share with God, he wanted to share that with the apostles, and then all those that the the word was spoken to, trickling all the way down to us. Not only did he want to unify as he is with God, he wanted to unify us with him and us with God himself. He wanted to do it in this manner. He wanted to bring them together. Now let's flip over to Ephesians chapter 6. Let's start in verse 24. I'm sorry, I'm looking at Ephesians 6, but I'm reading from Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, let's start in verse 24. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. We're going to find two main analogies in Scripture, two illustrations that Christ will use to describe his relationship to this one body that he is uniting with God. And one of the main illustrations that he's going to use to describe this body is it's his bride almost. The way that he has died to purify purify her, the way that he loves her, the way that he takes care of her, and the way that he has done everything to set her up. And that connection that he has in authority here from Ephesians chapter 5, that's how he sees the church. And so once again we find this one this oneness idea. And the other illustration we're going to see in Scripture, and this is also talked about in Ephesians chapter 3, is that just as Christ is you know, a bride to a bridegroom, He's also to the church like a head is to the body. And once again, just as we know today, when we think about a, a groom and a bride, there's one of each. Now our world may start saying otherwise, who knows, but we know how God intended it to be, and so we see the impact of that illustration. And then obviously as we see, as we look around tonight, We see the illustration very well in front of us that we all have one head for one body, right? And so we see that the same way Christ is unifying and coming together with this group, he also has this intent of an organization in that way. He also has this intent to have a connection in that way. So that's just me getting the ball rolling, so I'll hand it over to you. Ben, I think you had Matthew 16? Is that where
2: you're... Yeah, uh, if you turn to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, we see Jesus uh, talking to Peter. And as he is uh, giving his confession that he believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, in verse 16, uh, Peter gives this confession. And then in verse 18, Jesus responds by saying, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And so, obviously, when we think about the overall question uh, of our night tonight, is why are there so many? denominations we're going to talk about why that is in a little bit but we start out by talking about this intent what was the original intent and we find it here in this verse in verse 18 that Christ would build his church not his churches not a plurality of all these different bodies but his church and as Jay read in Ephesians 4, one Lord, one faith, one, not thousands, not millions, not any other, all these different roads all leading to the same place, but one body. And we find that idea, as Jay was saying, in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us about how we are the body, his church. In Ephesians 1.22 he says, "...and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church." which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then in Colossians chapter 1, and verse 18, it tells us that Christ is the head of the church. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he, that is Christ, might have the preeminence. So when we think about the original intent that Christ had for the church is that he might be the head of the body. And the body is us, the people, the church. You know, we study with people a lot in the denominational world, and we talk to them about how there is only one head to the church and how there should only be one body. And I like to explain it this way. Tonight we got trunk or treat. we got all these uh, afterwards we're going to have our kids dress up, and they're going to probably be uh, some people dressed up as... Uh, monsters or some cute little thing. and When you think about a monster, you think about Monsters, Inc., and they have all these, the, the, the movie, and they come out there and they have multiple heads and multiple bodies and they look all disfigured and they're kind of scary looking. That's what the denominations have done to the original intent. Instead of one head, we're going to have two or three. Instead of one body, we're going to have 2,000. And it's just all right. Well, no, that's a monster. And that's an easy way for us to understand how Christ's original intent has been distorted. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But Christ's original intent for the church was for him to be the head and us, his people, to be his body. That's what Christ's original intent was for his church.
0: I also think it's that yeah, microphone gets me every time. I, I also think it's important to draw attention to John chapter fifteen. This might be less oriented towards um, his intent and, and more oriented towards explanation, but in John chapter fifteen and verse five, Jesus made this statement. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Now, one thing I've noticed in my interactions with people who pose the question about multiple denominations is that they'll appeal to this verse. And they'll say that this verse is an indication that Jesus knew there would one day be multiple denominations, and that as long as they are Christ-centered, then therefore they are one of the branches that he's talking about. Now, the problem with such an argument, as we appeal to the original intent, is that, as has been pointed out by Jay and Ben, is that there is, the intent was for one body, for one vine. The intent began with this idea of unity, through which all would be uh, connected. When you try to argue that the, bran- the, uh, the various branches are denominations, you're taking this verse out of context. Jesus said this in the context of, of Israelite religion. The nation of Israel was often depicted as a, a vine um, or in Old Testament literature and imagery. One of the more prominent passages in the Old Testament that utilizes the imagery of a vine is, is actually Psalm chapter 80. In verse 7 through 9 it says, Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it, you cleared the ground for it, it took deep root and filled the land. And then picking up Psalm 80, picking up in verse 14, says, Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see have regard for this vine, this, the stalk that your right hand planted and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. The imagery there in the Old Testament is that Israel is God's vine. And what Jesus is communicating when we get to John chapter 15 is that he's really the vine. And the branches aren't denominations. The branches are people. People. Individuals. You look at John chapter 15 in context and there's a statement in verse 4 Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine neither can you unless you abide in me I am the vine you are the branches he's speaking individualistically he's speaking about your fruit bearing he's not speaking about whether or not uh, other multiple denominations exist. He's speaking about you as an individual. Are you being productive in the kingdom? That's the idea that undergirds this whole I am the vine speech that we have in John chapter 15. And remember this, John chapter 15 is part of one really long monologue that ends in John chapter 17 where Jay was just talking about, where, Jay, where, where Jesus speaks about unity and how he wants everyone to be one. So this is not a verse that is contending for the existence of denominations. John fifteen five is a verse that's speaking about individual responsibility to be a fruit bearer or else be pruned. And So we need to look at this verse in the context of the original intent. The original intent to have one church that is comprised of individual members. And that's the context of this passage.
3: I think the God's original intent of His church and of His people is just one. Uh, you know the popular verse, uh, 1 Peter chapter two verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. So we are a people, one holy nation, one race. So. His intent is not there are more than one. So um, then uh, we may have to think that how can we be one? Uh, First, you know, we have the one head. I I think uh, that we have one head means we have one spirit. What is the spirit? What is the spirit that unites all of us in one one church, uh, to be up, of people, the, the spirit is love. There is no place in the church that we can have hatred to anybody, to, to anyone in the church, to anyone outside of chur- church. But the denominationalism is kind of uh, an outcome of hatred because they hate some people so they wanted to uh, want to separate themselves from the church. So they 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 became more than one churches. But, the, but still, there is one church, one people, one race, one nation of God. So another thing that uh, unites the all members of the church in one as one church is the truth. Uh, second. Timothy chapter 3 verse 15 says that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Because we support, we uphold the truth, only the truth of God. We cannot be more than one because we uphold one truth. Because we uphold one word of God. We have to be one and the church has to be one. So that is the uh, original intent of God. You know, there cannot be, as uh, Brother Ben pointed out, there cannot be anything like one head with several bodies. That's not God's intent. Guys, is there anything else you'd like to add? All right, well,
0: the second part of this study we wanted to focus on this evening is why denominations exist. Mingu's already kind of got the ball rolling on that, so Mingu, will you uh, continue with further thoughts?
3: Okay. Um, I define a denomination like this. A de- denomination is a group of religious people who distinguish themselves from the church by the doctrine that is based on human philosophies, thoughts, and traditions, according to Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. So uh, a denomination happens when a group of people separate themselves from the church because of these human ideas and things. Like, according to the Bible, I looked up the Bible and uh, found these things. uh, First, different gospel than the word of God teaches. Uh, Galatians chapter uh, chapter 1, verse 6 through 9, a different gospel, which is a di- distortion of the gospel of Christ, a gospel contrary to the one uh, Paul and his companions preached it to the church, a gospel contrary to the one uh, the church received. First Timothy chapter one verse three says, "Any different doctrine." So, if a group of people are based on any different doctrine than the you know Word of God teaches, is a denomination. Uh, first Timothy chapter six verse. Three to six, uh, three to five a different doctrine and uh, which does not agree with the sound words of the uh, words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness the second thing the denomination is based on is philosophy human philosophy Colossians chapter 2 verse 4 says plausible plausible arguments Colossians chapter 2 verse 8 says philosophy and empty deceit. I mean, uh, these words are coming from warnings uh, from Paul. And the third thing that the denomination is based on is worldliness, worldliness, hatred, falsity, and worldly desires. Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 the elemental spirits of the world. Uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 says, Spirit of false prophets, Romans chapter 16, verse 17 and 18, uh, mentions such persons serve their own appetites. Some translations say their own belly. So their covetousness is the basis of the uh, denomination. And 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, as you well know, the love of money also is a worldliness of uh, a worldly worldly basis of the denominations. And also the first thing that the denominations are based on is the human traditions. Mark chapter 7 verse 8, Jesus pointed out that uh, people many, you know, wrong people were uh, trying to keep the tradition of man not the tradition of God. Uh, Colossians chapter 2 verse 8 also mentions human tradition. Colossians, Colossians Chapter 2, verse 16 and 17 uh, also mentions questions of food and drink, a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, asceticism, worship of angels, visions, things like that. Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, verse 20 to 23 also mentions regulations according to human precepts and teachings. And finally, uh, the denomination happens uh, because of the false teachings, false teachings, and also uh, some people's naiveness to follow them. First Timothy chapter four, verses one through three, uh, mentions deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are are seared. Romans chapter 16, verse 18, smooth talk and flattery, uh, which deceive the hearts of the naive. Colossians chapter two verse eighteen and nineteen mentions the false teacher is one who is puffed up without reason by his anxious mind and not holding fast to the head. So these I found these five, uh, five things and these five things are all mixed or each can be the basis of the denomination, but as as you uh, may understand uh, from these things these are not truth these are not from god these are all from humans and false humans so denomination is the outcome of the falsity and false human human things
2: amen and when i you know you're saying about the false teaching especially this is something that jesus told us what happened In Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, he tells us that there will be false prophets who come to us in sheep's clothing, but inside they are ravenous wolves. And he tells us, how do we know the difference? He says, you will know them by their fruit. You will know them by the fruit that they produce. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, he says. Every bad tree that bears bad fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire, he says. Also, Paul, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he tells us to preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. And so the Apostle Paul told us that this would happen, that there would be those who want to have their ears scratched. What does that mean? They want to have what they want to have. They want to take this part and take this part, but they don't want to take this part. They want to take the part about Jesus saying, We want you to have an abundant life, but they don't want to take the part that says, If you love me, keep my commandments. So they want to pick and choose what they want, like they're at a buffet. And that's exactly what happened. Why do denominations exist? Because God gave a perfect institution to an imperfect people. God gave the perfect church to an imperfect people. And man were the ones who messed it up. Just like we talked about with suffering. He gave us a perfect world and we messed it up. He gave us a perfect institution in the church and we messed it up. Why? Because we want to have our ears scratched. We want... To have what we want to have and we don't want to have anything that is challenging, anything that is against what we believe or what we want to believe or what we want to have for our lives. And so we find and we search out for someone who agrees with us. Instead of seeing that, oh my, oh my I have a problem with the Bible. I need to change myself. Instead of doing that, we say, Well, I have a problem with the Bible. I'm going to find a group of people that agree that it's not a problem. That's why denominations exist. Because we come to a point in our lives where we have a problem with what God says in his word, and we want to find a group of people who agrees with us. Instead of addressing the problem within ourselves and changing ourselves, we want to make the Bible be the one that has the problem or the original church of God's intent to be the one that has the problem. And that's never the case. You know, if we find a problem with something in our life that is in contradiction to God's Word, it's not God's word fault. It's our fault. And instead of running to a church or a denomination or to a group of people that agrees with us, we'd be way better off just addressing the problem. And bending our, our lives to the church of God's and Christ's intent that we just talked about. Because division is something that God hates. God hates division. God hates when we divide the body, when we split, when we divide ourselves in a way that he would never have divided us. As Jay mentioned, he, brought, he came to bring us the unity that he talked about in John chapter 17. Why do denominations exist? Because it is made up of, the church is made up of people who messed it up, and it was messed up through the
0: false teaching and the scratching of ears. Well, thank you, Ben. You said basically what I was thinking about saying specifically about uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. So, Jay, do you have anything you'd like to add
1: on this subject? Yeah, I'll just add something real quick. I I think there's a, I think that what you all have said pretty much sums up 90% of why there are denominations. I think the only other side of it, maybe just one one last comment on this, is there are denominations because, one, there are false teachers, and because of deceitfulness reasons or laziness reasons, they want an easier gospel or they want a gospel that serves them better. There's also denominations because there are people willing to listen to those false teachers. Mm. You know, there are multiple people who are willing to say, you know, I would, I would rather have that gospel that scratched my ears. I'd rather, I, would, I would rather go to this congregation that's like this. I would like a gospel that's a little easier for me to follow. I think we've all, everybody in this room, have heard people, our family, our friends, people, our, our own thoughts at times who have left the church because of, well, this congregation over here, they worship this way, or maybe they say this and they say that, but they have got a great children's program, and that's enough for me. And so I think for that reason, there's always going to be false teachers, but unfortunately there there's always going to be people willing to listen to them as well. So, just one last.
0: Thank you, Jay. Now, we've been using the term denomination. There is another term that gets thrown around a lot, and that is non-denominational. How do we distinguish between that which is denominational and that which is non-denominational? It's become very trendy these days uh, for a church to be identified as non-denominational. So, Ben, would you kind of explain the difference between those terms for us? Absolutely. Uh, When we
2: think about this denominational versus non-denominational, the discussion that we're having is how are we able to distinguish what is the denomination and what is not. As Mingu already defined, the word denomination is basically a branch of the original, right? You have, uh, in money, they call different money denominations. It's a $10 denomination. It's a branch of, and it's a certain group of people who have aligned themselves together to have their ears <coughs> stretched, as we just talked about. And so there are many denominations. They're branches of the original. But as we've already talked about, that was never the intent. However, nonetheless, it happens. Regardless of what the intent was, we know that they are out there. We know that there are thousands of denominations. And so the question, the reason why we're talking about this tonight is because every single one of you have to deal with the denominational world you have to deal with your friends your family your coworker your neighbor who is a part of the denominational world and so the question is why are there so many denominations and the question also is what how do i designate how do i distinguish what is a denomination and what is not a denomination and so these churches these These denominations who have been denominations for years have realized, man, people hate the denominational world. People hate the different division, the different stances that have been taken, the different they want Jesus but not the church idea. They want Jesus but not religion. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take ourselves out of the denominational world. We're not going to be denomination anymore. We're going to be non-denominational. So they'll put that on their signs, they'll put that in their advertisements. We're non-denominational. But just the one down the road that claims they're non-denominational has John Wesley as a statue in front of it. Basically tying themselves back to the Methodist tradition of the domination of the Methodist church. So we know that there are some individuals who claim to be non-denominational who in fact are not non-denominational. In fact, there can only be one non-denominational church, and that is the church that Christ established in the book of Acts. As we've just talked about, unless it can tie its spiritual roots back to that book of Acts, then it is not, in fact, non-denominational. And so when we think about this denominational, how do we distinguish it? Well, anything that blows up the original intent of what Christ desired is a denominational church. You will know them by their fruits, Jesus said. How do we know a denomination? By the things that they do, by the things that they teach. Is this a doctrine of man or is this the doctrine of God? Are they upholding the word of God or are they upholding the creed that was written in the 17 or the 1800s? That is how you distinguish the difference between denominational and non-denominational. If you are non-denominational, it means you are not a branch of the original, but that you are the original. You can see why this has become a big trend in late late days with everyone wanting to be non-denominational because that's what is very right for us to be. We want to be non-denominational. We don't want to be a part of a denomination, but however... There is only one non-denominational church and it is the church of Christ that He established all the way back in the book of Acts. We know that because of the fruit that we produce. We do the things that they did in the book of Acts. When they say we are to do the Lord's Supper in Acts 20 and verse 7, on the first day of the week, when do we do it? On the first day of the week, we protect the Lord's Supper. When they say that they gave of their means on the first day of the week in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2, we give of our means because of 1 Corinthians 16 too. When they say we sing and make melody in our hearts to the Lord, Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19, we sing and make melody in our hearts to the Lord. When they tell us to read Scripture and to study and to preach from God's Word, we do those things because they did those things. You know, the restoration plea is to speak where the Bible speaks and to be silent where the Bible is silent, to call Bible things by Bible names, and the list goes on and on. We are to look at the commands, the examples, the necessary inferences or the implications that Scripture makes. That's how you know if you're denominational or not. Are we looking at the word of men or the word of God? Are we scratching ears or are we trying to please God? That is the difference between denominational and non-denominational. And what what happens when you have all these denominational churches claiming to be non-denominational, it just adds to the confusion in our world. It adds to the people who say, I don't want to be any part of this. I don't want to be part of any type of religion. Just give me Jesus. I don't want the church. Unfortunately, it can't be that way. You cannot have Jesus without the church, and you cannot have the church without Jesus. And unfortunately, this conversation is so prevalent in our world. But like we said, it is because of the false teaching and the people willing to be taught falsely. We're told to test all things. We're told to preach the Word in season, out of season, and all the things, to rebuke those who would teach it falsely. But so many times, instead of confronting the false teacher, it's way easier just to simply get in the car and go home. But I know that will never happen here because of the comments we always get afterwards. People come to us, thank you for this comment. Hey, I had a comment on this. Why? Because you want to seek the truth. And you want to know what God's Word actually has to say. So that's my very short definition on non-denominational and denominational i got an axe to grind with this because it's not fair for anyone to claim to be non-denominational when they're not.
0: It's just another example of wolves in sheep's clothing. I think an, uh, another component of the definition of denominational versus non-denominational is the existence of autonomy. Um, a, a lot of churches have adopted the non-denominational terminology because they have distanced themselves from a hierarchy of organization. One thing that scripture clearly teaches is that each congregation of the Lord's church is to be autonomous, which is self-governing. You can see that in particular in Acts chapter 14 as uh, as you have Paul and Barnabas on this mission trip establishing these churches and then going back to them and appointing elders for each congregation. And it becomes very clear in the, in the way they uh, appoint these elders that they are appointed to oversee that particular congregation, and that gives that congregation autonomy. In the context of the definitions of, of denomination versus non-denominational, what you have is the existence of a definition that implies governance, self-governance or not. And so that is another way in which these terms are applied. It was very interesting when we sat down to prepare and discuss how we would go through this study. We pulled up some definitions of the word denomination. And every definition website you go to, every one of them had a different definition of denomination. Some of them would just appeal to the the branch mentality, some of them would appeal to the governance mentality, some of them would make it sound like every church is non-denominational. So your definition of denomination can vary, but there are two big ways to determine whether or not you qualify as a denomination. The first is to look at who founded the church, because any church founded by anyone other than Jesus Christ is a denomination. The other way is to look at when the church was founded or instituted, any church instituted on any other day other than the day of Pentecost, is a denomination. I'm going to circle back around to those two definitions in just a moment, but let me first pause and let our other forum uh, speakers address this subject of the difference between denomination and non-denominational.
3: I would like to, um, uh, you know, distinguish the denominational churches uh, from the church uh, in two ways. One in a passive way that you know, if a uh, if a group of people, or let me say, just the church, denominational church, if it has a set of beliefs uh, made of made out of some verses from the Bible, is a denomination because it is not upholding the whole truth because it is just upholding the only some extracts from the Bible, and that is not the Bible. You know, an extract from the Bible is not the same with the Bible itself. So if a group of people is mostly based on the extract, extracted some verses from the Bible, it's it's a denomination. And also, uh, another, another way is active way. So the church is the church, uh, which is upholding the whole truth, according to Apostle Paul, he taught the whole counsel of God. There, there should be nothing left from teaching. That is the church. The church upholds all truth. If the, if, if the Bible teaches that we have to have the Lord's Supper every week, we do it. If the Bible says, we, should, we don't have the authority to adopt the instrumental music in our worship. We don't do it. That's the whole thing. We don't miss anything. As far as we know that it is the Bible, that is what the Bible teaches, we uphold it. That is the church. We uphold the whole truth. Not part of it, not, the part, not some verses of the Bible, but we uphold whole truth that is the church. And if a church opposes only some things, only some verses, that is not the church.
1: Yeah, very quickly before we move on, the only thing I think I'd like to add to that is I think this is a really good point that's been brought up tonight, is the fact that this discussion, the watering down of the term non-denominational, and how it's going to keep playing out in our culture. Because I, I think... Like for me, for a, lot, for a lot of us growing up, when, when asked to describe the Church of Christ, you could give a term like non-denominational, and that by itself could set it aside, to, could define, okay, well, oh, okay, so that's, that's different, right? Or today when you say that, okay, oh, that's great, there's this congregation, there's this congregation, there's this name, there's that name. So, so non-denominational, to the public's eyes, really may not set us aside or set us apart or make us look any different than a lot of congregations, a lot of groups of believers that meet in this city, in this town, all around our county, just because that definition in the public's eyes have changed. I have a family member of mine who has grown up in the denomina- at a denominational congregation, and uh, she knows, obviously, that uh, I'm a member of the church, and I know where she goes and stuff like that. We grew up together, obviously. So um, and we talk about our faith a lot, and she co- we were talking this past year at Christmas, and she brought up, Jay, our, our congregation, our church, is, is having a split, and we're becoming non-de- non-denominational. I said, oh, wh- What? Well, explain that to me. What's, going, what's the split over? And it was a decision, actually, on homosexuality. And the congregation, the group of people who she was sticking closer with was a more of conservative decision. I said, well, what, what, are y'all going to change anything? Like, what else is, oh, we're not changing anything else. We're just, we don't like that one decision. But we're still going to worship the same. We're still going to do everything the same. So you just, So what are y'all going to do any different? Well, we've got to come up with a name now. And so she says, "Well, how do you do that?" She's like, "Well, we've got a committee who are just looking at names and trying to come up with stuff." And so that alone, the fact that they no longer had a traditional denominational name on the building, simply because they were able to take that off the building, take those letters off, and put in something like you know generic, you know the way the vine or something like that, we see a lot of times, a lot of different congregations that um, they said, "Okay, well now we're now we're non-denominational." So I think that's just an important point to bring up that you that you brought up that we've all been talking about. That we're going to, have to be a little more um, careful when we just describe ourselves as that and move on.
0: So that leads us to me turning the microphone back on. So that leads us to the point of asking this question: Is the Church of Christ the the Church of Christ? Is it a denomination? The quick answer is no. That's not necessarily the easy answer. See, I mentioned two things that distinguish a church from being, or distinguishes between denominational and non-denominational. I said any church founded by anyone other than Christ is not Christ's church, and any church founded on any other day other than Pentecost is not Christ's church. On the surface, those two facts about the New Testament church seem to present a problem for our fellowship because our historical heritage, the historical heritage of the churches of Christ, goes back to the early 19th century. In the early 1800s, men like Barton Stone and Thomas and Alexander Campbell, they they abandoned their denominational ties and sought to restore the primitive church, and so occasionally, you may have heard people refer to the Churches of Christ as Campbellites. I recently was called that. Now the objective of those men in the, what is now known as the Restoration Movement, the objective of those men was, was to be Christians only, who adhered to the pattern demonstrated by the Church of the New Testament. Under their leadership, or, or at least by their influence, the Restoration Movement was born And it's that movement from which the churches identified with the title Churches of Christ are affiliated. Now, if our congregation's heritage begins in the 19th century in North America, under the direction of men from whom the Stone Campbell movement was named, then would we not be counted as a religious body founded by someone other than Jesus and instituted on another occasion other than Pentecost? Well, before we go down that rabbit hole, think about the term restoration for a moment. Restoration is the act of returning something to a former condition. The reason this movement came to be known as the Restoration Movement is because those individuals who influenced the beginning of it did not seek to start a new denomination but restore the original primitive church that you read about in the New Testament— their goal was not to be church founders, but to be church restorers. And they may have begun that process, but we continue that process. Our goal is to be nothing short of the church you read about in Acts. See, because the church of Christ strives, or the churches under that title, Church of Christ, because it strives to restore the original church, not restart it, not found it, not reform it, but to restore what began on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. That's why the church of Christ is non-denominational. We look to the book of Acts and we look to the entire New Testament for the pattern of the church that Jesus Christ founded, and we seek to restore that pattern. That's what makes the church church. Non-denominational, guys. What would you like to add to that?
3: Uh, as I deal with many uh, people Korean, Koreans who are coming from denominational world, uh, it's easy for them to think that the Church of Christ is another denomination because they think denomination is a common and universal thing, and they think. Uh, relatively that, you know, because I agree that I my church is, an, is a denomination, so you have to agree with me that your church, Church of Christ, is also a denomination. So it's, it's like they are saying that the denomination is a, a relative concept and the church is also a denomination, but we have to be careful about that. You know, the church is not a, a relative concept. The church is a absolute concept. The church is one, and the church is instituted by, the, by Christ and uh, designed by God, and church is God's people, God's race, and God's uh, servants, and God's, uh, you know, worshippers. So uh, we have to be careful as we uh, discuss these things with, with other people who are from denominational concepts and ideas that Uh, we should not agree to them that, you know, relatively, yeah, Church of Christ could be also mentioned as a denomination. No, it's not true. Let me also throw this out
0: there. Any church that seeks to restore the New Testament pattern is Christ's church. A pattern is implied in Jesus' instructions for for his teachings to be passed down in perpetuity. Particularly in the Great Commission, Jesus instructed his disciples to not only make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but also by teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. A pattern is implied in Paul's instructions to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, and verse 3, to teach no other doctrine, and his instructions to the church in Rome to note as well as avoid anyone who causes divisions, in Romans chapter 16 and verse 17. A pattern is implied in Paul's instructions for Timothy to follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. And to entrust what you have heard from me to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse, 20, verse 2. And then a pattern is implied in John's instructions to test the spirits in John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1. See, when you look at the New Testament, there's an implied pattern to be followed. And any church any, any church that does not follow the example of the New Testament in both doctrine and practice, that's not Christ's church. Because there is a definitive divine plan that God intended to be the pattern by which the church in the New Testament could be identified and reproduced throughout history. In fairness, I quoted that from another author, but it sounded so good. When we look at the pattern that's provided in the New Testament, that's how we know what the New Testament church is supposed to be. And that's how we can determine whether or not we are that church. You guys have anything to add? Well, then I'd like us to transition with the remaining time that we have to this question. How should we interact with the denominational world? Mingu's already alluded to the fact that he has conversations, uh, he has dealings with those who come from denominations. How are we to uh, communicate and interact with those who come from a denominational background? Who'd like to get us started on this one?
1: Is it on that? Oh, there it is. It's not just me. <laughs> it is just you, Kyle. Amen. That's right. I have a handheld. It's extra hard. It's okay. 2 Timothy chapter 2. I think if, you, if we want a short answer with a short amount of time left, if we want a recipe of how to handle these biblical discussions with people who have a different faith and who have different understandings, who are coming from different backgrounds, I think this might be the easiest way um, to describe that. 2 uh, Timothy chapter 2. Let's start in verse 24, go through tw- the end of the chapter. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. I think that's an easy recipe of how we can handle a discussion that could go wrong or a discussion that could go difficult. But I think also I'd like to add, add to, to this discussion that we don't go into a conversation saying, I'm here to rescue you. You are lost, you are wrong, and let me look down upon you and pull you out of the snares of the devil. You know, I don't think that's what this passage is talking about. I think there's a level of love, obviously, that has to go to that, so I know there'll be a few passages that are brought up with that, too. But this is the first passage that comes to my mind when it comes to the, the literal conversations. If, when, when we were interacting with people from different denominations, there's no room for anger. There's no room for frustration. There's no room for intolerance at that point in that discussion, outside of just not, you know, not tolerating you know, something that's outside of the truth. So
0: this is where I always start. So building off of that, I thought of Ephesians 4.15, to speak the truth. Yeah. Is there any more to that verse? In love. Do we not have this urge sometimes to just focus on the speak the truth part and forget the in love part? Even in, in normal relational dealings between husband and wife or between friends, sometimes speak the truth trumps the in love part. But Ephesians four fifteen, speak the truth in love. I also think about 1 Peter chapter three and verse fifteen, where we are we were called upon to defend the, the reason for the hope that we have within us, but to do so with what? With what, Ben? Meekness and fear. Meekness and fear, or gentleness and fear, or gent- I'm sorry, gentleness and respect is another translation. All I knew Ben would know that because that's his favorite verse. Um, so we have these passages that tell us how to interact, how to defend, how to speak. I also think of Colossians chapter 4 and verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. There is, there is an instruction there from Paul telling us to be gracious and thoughtful in how we communicate. I think all of these verses combined with what Jay was just talking about, give us the starting point to know that, that as we communicate truth, we do so with the understanding that we've got to do it in love, that it's got to be thoughtful, that it's got to possess respect, that it's got to uh, possess a gentleness about it. And if we can wrap our minds around such tactics, if you will, it will aid us in our communication with those that come from a different religious background.
1: If, if I can jump back in real quick again, sorry to, to bounce back, but I think about John chapter 4 and how Jesus interacted with the woman at the well. I mean, that is a, a, a woman of a different faith in a different area. And he does not start, you know, his, his conversation did not start with you are in the wrong with how you believe, where you worship at, and all this. He did not start there. He started with a relationship, with a conversation, with a building of trust, and then with the introdu- introduction of the truth through that. Obviously, we're not getting, you know, we're not in the same situation as Christ in the, in the full discussion of that conversation, but I think that's a good model of how we have conversations, how we interact with the, with the denominational world, is that we start with love, and we start with a, a, com, a compassion and care on them, and a willingness to have that conversation. It's not, okay, you view kind of like I do, we have some similarities, but you worship over here, I worship over there, therefore we just can't be on the same side of the aisle on anything. That's not how Jesus took that.
3: Okay. um, What is interesting to me is that most of the uh, New Testament books, especially the books that are written by Apostle Paul, are dealing with the church. And as we know that there are people who are uh, still doing uh, from the denominational ideas, from the different ideas, uh, you know, uh, from the Bible, um, from the gospel. And, you know, especially... As I recall, the Book of Colossians is really hard, I mean, uh, uh, concentratedly talking about about the people who have some different ideas and different uh, thoughts and uh, different traditions. But still, Paul is teaching that we have to, I mean, Paul himself is teaching them very gently, but without, Compromise with the truth, so we have to learn from those books uh, that uh, how we can how we have to um, you know uh, handle ourselves as we uh, meet the uh, denominational people. So I would like to sum you know from my experience with uh, dealing with the people from denominational background uh, this way: have mercy on them. Jesus said, you know. Uh, I didn't come to call the righteous, but to call the sinners. So we have, we have to have mercy on people always. And second, develop a relationship to show them, tr- show them the truth. If we discard the relationship with them, then we will not have the opportunity to show them the truth. And finally, manifest the gospel by your life, by our life. So as we live, according—I mean, according to the truth—as we live the truth, they will uh, see the truth. They will see the love of of Christ in us, and they will ask uh, the question: You know, what makes you uh, live like that? Then we will have the have the opportunity to answer the question. So uh, this is the way that I believe uh, we have to deal with the denomination people.
2: You know. Five years ago, I would have had a totally different answer to this question. How should we deal, how should we interact with the denominational world? Five years ago, I would have told you to do what Jace told you not to. I would have dealt with them harshly. I would have spoken to them. Why don't you just understand it the way I understand it, you know? I, I, I don't, I, the way, the area I was raised, I don't know what was in me, but... It was a bit harsh in a way that turned off way more than it ever won. And then I met Scott Harp. Uh, Well, he was my cousin. I met him before then. But I worked with Scott Harp. And Scott told me, Ben, you're going to win way more with honey than vinegar. You're going to catch more flies with honey than vinegar. (laughs) And that stuck with me. And I think it's so true. And he also told me this, Ben, you need to meet people where they are and help bring them to where they need to be. And that changed my life. And this is why. Because I expect people to just be where I am. Why don't you have the understanding that I have? Why haven't you understood it the way I've always understood it? Why weren't you taught the way I've always been taught? It's time for you to get on board. And I'm afraid there are far too many like that in the church. What if it were you? What if you were on the outside looking in? What if you were not the non-denominational world, but you were of the denominational world? And you were in error. How would you want to be approached with the truth? Would you want someone to just say, What's wrong with you? Get right. Or would you want someone to speak the truth in love, to catch you with that honey, the sweet good news of Jesus, not the bad news of hellfire and brimstone? So now I understand that it's best for us to meet them where they are, bring them to where they need to be, and where we are headed, not where we have arrived. You know, as I think it was Kyle mentioned, the restoration is not complete. We have not restored the church of God's intent. We are still in the process of restoring it. In fact, in the New Testament, they were in the process of restoring it. 1 Corinthians, read it. They had divisions. They had men doing unspeakable things. And Paul was in the effort to restore the church of God and Christ's intent way back in the New Testament. We are still in that effort of restoring the church of God's intent. And we will always be in an effort to restore the church of God's intent. Why? Because the church of God's intent is perfect. And we are imperfect. And so as we deal and we interact with people in the denominational world, As Mingus said, we need to have mercy. We need to meet them where they are and bring them to where they need to be. We need to catch them with the good news of the gospel. That there is a body for them to become one with Christ and to become one with others who are walking in a like manner. So I hope that that challenges all of us and I hope that you find yourself a little bit more humble as we walk away from tonight. Not that we have arrived, but that we are simply on our way to where God wants us to be.
3: Oh, let me just add one thing. As I have been dealing with uh, so many Koreans um, who mostly are from a denominational background, you know, what I really, really appreciate is the support from the church. You know, if you don't support me and my ministry, it will not be possible. But because you, as my brothers and sisters, support me and uh, trust me in that battle, uh, who are in the battle, uh, I can do it. So I really, I, I want to express my appreciation of your support.
0: Thank you for joining us tonight. I have to admit, I mean, we we had our highest Sunday night attendance since we've come back. And I like to believe that it's because our studies are so good. But unfortunately, I'm a realist. But I hope the fact that you're here tonight means that I can trust that you'll be here again with us next Sunday night when we gather again. Because it is such a joy to come together as a church family to be together to study God's Word. So please come back again next week and in the weeks to come. We're going to close out with a word of prayer. Brother Ben Hogan is going to lead us in that prayer. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come
2: before you tonight and we're humbled at the knowledge that you have established a perfect institution in your church. Uh, We pray that uh, we will constantly be in an active effort to restore that intent that you had uh, for us. We pray that we can truly be your body, that we can truly be your people, your holy nation, uh, your true children here on this earth, that we can be the salt and the light and the beacon and the light set upon a hill so that this world might know uh, that you are God. Lord, we pray for our hearts that we will be pricked to treat others the way we would be treated, that we will treat them with kindness. And respect and meet them where they are and bring them towards you. Lord we pray that uh, we will continue uh, to stir one another up, challenge one another and grow with one another as we worship and labor here at Buford. Well, thank you for the elders and the shepherds that look over our souls. Uh, we pray that you'll continue to guide them in the decisions that they make. Lord we're so happy to see a bunch of our children tonight uh, we thank you for them and what they mean to us and the congregation here and for not only the future of the church, but the present. We pray that they'll have a great time tonight. Lord, bring us back the next time that uh, we gather together. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.